For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. My name is AJ Gordon. Today I am joined with Sunny Balkane, who, when I try to come up with your title by researching you online, the closest I could get to that is Racing Pioneer. <laughs> so that is not a bad title to have. Thank you so much, Sunny, for coming in. Well, thank you very much, AJ. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, there's a ton I want to talk to you about, and I have a ton of questions, but we're going to go all the way. To the very, very beginning, so, you know, try your, your sort of hardest to think of your, what is your first or earliest automotive memory? My first automotive memory was helping my father overhaul a 1936 Pontiac. Uh, that was during the war years, and uh, that's when I first got my hands greasy, because in those days you couldn't take your car to the repair shop, so my father, being an Army officer was home on leave, and he decided to rebuild the engine in the old Pontiac, which we had to do during the war years to keep the old cars running. And that's where I got my first exposure and learned all the different sizes of sockets and end wrenches and so forth and, and techniques because my father was an aviator for the military, and that's where he got his training. So was he a, a very mechanical guy? He was, hands? but he was a pilot, an engineer, and a mathematician. Yeah. And during World War II, he served with General Mark Clark in the Italian campaign, and he was one of the American high command in Carrying, taking care of the war in, in the Italian campaign. And so he was more a mathematician, log, logician. Yeah. So, And, and you, you learned at a very early age sort of how to tinker and work with your hands. Is that something that you think sort of came natural to you because you're wired a little bit like your dad, or is that something you really had to sort of buckle down and learn? Uh, no, it's I, somewhat wired and, and highly motivated, highly passionate, and I recall that now since I'm 78 years of age. I look back in retrospect. And uh, uh, my family was Belgian on my father's side, and my grandfather was an engineer with the railroads, not an engineer that runs locomotives, but an engineer that designs railroads. Mm -hmm. And he came over from Belgium to work for an American entrepreneur in upstate New York before World War One or just after World War One, I, I think it is, and then uh, stayed there and worked with Rochester Carburetor Company and other things. And so he came from an engineering background, and I think my father came from that. My father was the youngest of three brothers, and he went into the military, naturally, because of World War Two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody did that. Yeah, time. yeah. So you, from a very multi-generational family who, not always working on things automotive, but Definitely mechanical and bicycles. Yeah, anything that can move. Anything that had uh, forward motion and that I could have fun riding or or driving, I was part of. It's always something neat because you know I, someone like myself, I very much um, admire designers, people who are very good at you know just good design. You know, be it a house or a car, and be, you know even somebody who could just put a pen to paper. And draw a good sketch of a car. And I always wonder, is that something you can learn how to do? Because I have terrible handwriting. I can't draw. Um, and I wonder if you could take someone like me who and teach them. Or is that something you really just have to be born with? And it sort of seems like in your family's case, it's just it's in your blood. It's in your DNA. I think it may be a little bit, but at the same time, I've seen people learn, and then I've seen people attempt to learn that haven't. So yeah. I think it depends on the individual and their motivations. That question needs to be answered. But I, like you, appreciate creativity no matter where it comes from. And if it comes in automotive design or it comes in mechanical design or it comes in technological electronic design, 
comes in scientific research in outer space. Those are things that interest me. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's very interesting. So when you were working on uh, the car with your dad, where were you growing up? In Playa del Rey at the time. We'd originally lived in Hollywood, and then we moved to Playa del Rey uh, at, in, where my grandfather had a residence. So what kind of give a just a description of what the scene was like back then? Because I, I can only imagine it's it was so different, especially Hollywood and Playa del Rey back then compared to how they are now. So what was it like growing up in those parts of Southern California? Well, it was totally, di- totally different than it yeah. is today, I must say. And uh, Hollywood was uh, a lot different than it is today, definitely a lot different than it was today. And there's no sense in me articulating it to you, but it was a lot calmer, a lot peaceful, but there was a lot of activity. Play Del Rey was total peace because it was a beach community and it was difficult to get to and there was no mainstream transportation to get there other than your own car. And gasoline was rationed, so uh, we had to, we could buy so much gas and we only used it for places we need to go because my mother would do the driving. My father, of course, was off fighting a war. It must have just been such a different time because you look at it on a map and you go, that's five miles. <laughs> you know, and now it could be two hours in traffic. But, yeah. you know, there must have been such Hollywood to Playa del Rey must have been such a world apart because, you know, like you said, because of the gas, there weren't, you know, there wasn't the 405 and the 10 to get you down there. Yep. Uh, so it was a little it was a little bit further. But you, you must have also been growing up sort of at the height or at least the conception of hot rodding. Exactly. Before hot rodding had come about, my uncle on my mother's side of the family had raced at the dry lakes with a lakes roadster with a Chevrolet four-cylinder, which was from the 20s. And of course, then before the war and then after the war, he came back and uh, picked up that sport again, but only in a minor way. So I had some exposure from him. But I can remember street racing, and I was part of that movement, and I was young when I was part of it, but I know a lot of people that have been involved with the Peterson were part of it. And uh, I can remember watching my first street race on Culver Boulevard, and uh, there may have been nothing to it in those days, but uh, my mother was had taken us to a movie in Culver City, and we were coming home from a movie at night, and the uh, fellow stopped her in the car and he said can you wait here a minute miss we're having a little uh, speed contest <laughs> yeah and they were ra- a 32 roadster was racing a another 32 roadster down culver boulevard with a flathead ford and i think that really uh, and i was all of about 13 years old at the time and we'd just gotten back from europe and i thought uh this was this was something that really interested me. That sort of hooked and you th- from there on. This out. was before there was drag racing or Wally Parks or anything. Yeah, Hot Rod Magazine was just getting going. I remember looking at the first <clears throat> copy of it in uh, when it was printed in 1948, I think it was, mm-hmm. and uh, and we had a boys' club in uh, Playa del Rey where I lived, and we'd go down there and look at Hot Rod Magazine, and boy, things changed. And then I went to my first drag race, which was being held in Saugus, California and smelled nitromethane, and the guys would come in from the dry lakes, and we had Halibrand quick-change differentials, and they could change the gears. So for drag racing, obviously, they'd lead a lot lower gear for the rear end than they would for for uh, the lakes where they're going for a high-speed run, and this is going to be a short-speed run. And uh, they changed the tires on it, and we really didn't have slicks in those days. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and smelled the nitromethane, saw all the dust from the lakes cars on them and everything, and I think I was totally smitten. So how did you get involved? I mean, what, what, being a 13 year old boy, and by the way, what was your mom's reaction to saying, miss, would you mind stopping for a second? Well, the, the <laughs> way it started since you, since you, you, you asked me, AJ, uh, 
I was playing horseshoes in our backyard, yeah. and I got hit by a horseshoe in the head, and it cut my head open. And my Ooh. mother rushed me to Santa Monica Hospital, and the doctor that was stitching me up, he says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a race driver. And he said, I'm not stitching you up, as a <laughs> joke. And that helped get it started. Well, how because uh, the hot rodding was pretty counterculture at the time. It it. it it wasn't something, I don't know, maybe the, the nice boy down the street was doing. It was sort of an, an outlaw, rebellious time. And you, as a young person, uh, you know, a young man getting involved with this, um, how did your parents take it? I mean, was it something they didn't want you to do? Of course, my father wasn't there. Yeah. My mother was there. And, I, you know, she never really put uh, any kind of a slowdown on it. I mean, she just allowed the creativity to develop. Of course, I was involved with motor scooters, and a friend of mine would come over at night and say, well, we're going to go for a ride on, and you go on the back with my motor scooter. And she'd say, no, don't do that. You might get hurt, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Like that. But, but with the automobiles, she never really, you know, there were all kinds of hot rods around. I mean, like 36 Ford Roadsters and different things like that that we played around with, and then Chevrolets, uh, six-cylinders, straight sixes, and so forth. And... Uh, she really encouraged it. What was I your, mean, she didn't say go out and do it, but she yeah. never discouraged it. What was your first car you built for yourself to race? Uh, at the drag races yeah. after it really started going? Or, or your first no, car well, you my, started my, working my, on. My first car was my mother's 1948 uh, or 1946 Chevrolet, in which I put three carburetors on and a camshaft and had it disabled for several weeks when I was doing that. Yeah. I might have been 14 to 15 at the time. So at what point when you were engineering these cars and working on them did you think i could do this for a living actually i got started in a gas station mm -hmm. like all kids did in those days that were involved with cars and i worked in a gas station pumping gas and that's when you had to check the water check the oil fill the tires with air and clean all the windows and for a gallon of gas that was sold by the proprietor and i started engineering uh, a way to make a living and that was I serviced automobiles. I knew that they needed oil changes and they needed lube jobs. And the gentleman that on the gas station knew nothing about that. Then later on, I started working on ignitions and carburetors and gearboxes. And it just progressed from there. And I made a deal with the gentleman that on the gas station that I would receive all the labor and he'd make his profit on the parts. And then that I became an entrepreneur at the same time. So pretty early on, you, you figured out, you know, a lot of people say it's something. Now I just fell into it. But you, you early on decided, I'm going to make this my living. Yep. Um, because of my mother's side of the family, they were all entrepreneurs going back two generations prior to that. So I guess that was an instinctive thing also. And from there, you got hooked up with, I would say, some pretty big, but the biggest names in you know, American racing from that point. Well, actually, I think the most fortunate day of my life was when I met Ed Donovan, who was the great drag racer, if you know anything about Ed and the Donovan engine and all the things that have, have preceded Ed. He's dead now. He's died at a very young age, age 57, of colon cancer. Mm. And uh, But he's a very famous person in drag racing. He was my first mentor. He was older than me by about eight to nine years and I was kind of like the mascot and I used to go to the drag races with he and Frank startup and then 
out of the, they ran four cylinders in those days against flathead V8s, you know, modified Fords. And uh, Donovan was always out to prove that he could make the four cylinder with enough nitro in it outrun the flathead. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was. Uh, I think the spirit when I look back at drag racing in the old days was really innovative. It was where we all tried new things. And, of course, we had the fuel cans and the different things we were experimenting with fuel at the drags in order to make things produce more horsepower. And we were able to do that. But well, Donovan was the key. Excuse me. And then how did you get connected after Donovan with people like Carl Shelby and Jim Hall? Well, that that's an interesting thing because uh, through Donovan, I really got involved in drag racing. And then I was more of a – I became an automobile mechanic. Yeah. And I didn't realize that I had the talent at the time, and I did. And a fellow by the name of Bud Han took me under wing and trained me how to work on then what they called foreign cars, which are MGs and Jaguars and Austin Healys. Mm-hmm. And I worked on them for a long time. And through that, I met another gentleman by the name of Warren Olson. And he was a specialist yeah, on Porsches, trained by Johnny Von Neumann, who was the Porsche distributor in Los Angeles, the Porsche Volkswagen distributor. And that's how he made his fortune. His car is sitting behind you as we speak. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's that, a, that, the Ferrari that Bruce owns. Yeah, that's yeah, the I Von think. Neumann. The Von Neumann, yeah, who my friend Richie used to drive. And John drove it, too. I think John plowed into, I'll tell you the story later. Yeah. But anyway, uh, to go back to that, I started working for him. And we had a very special garage in West Hollywood or he had a special garage in West Hollywood, and we were working on Ferraris and mainly Porsches and then mm-hmm. some Maseratis, very few uh, around in those days, and some some uh, Seattas and some Oscars. And uh, he, <clears throat> excuse me, a young gentleman came walking into the shop one day uh, with a fr- with a customer of Warren's by the name of Bruce Kessler, and if you haven't interviewed him, might, you might consider that. He was one of the original uh, sport car race drivers here. And uh, his his buddy at the boys' school in Arizona was Lance Revenlow, who was the son of Barbara Hutton, the Woolworth heiress. And Lance came into the shop and got smitten by what we were doing and got smitten by motor racing and proceeded to go out and buy, at the time, a special factory Mercedes-Benz 300 SL, which had an all-aluminum uh, body wow. and rudge hubs and magnesium castings on parts of the engine and parts of the gearbox. So we maintained the car for him at the then sport car races, you mm-hmm. know, which was the, the California Sports Car Club at SCCA. And then Lance got even more smitten. And, he, and then my boss, Warren Olson, became the distributor of John Cooper's cars. Okay. And John Cooper made uh, then, which was a training car for Formula One, a Formula Three car, which had a 500cc motorcycle engine and burning menthol usually. And... Uh, we maintained those cars, and then Lance bought an 1100 Cooper, which was one of the first rear-engine sport cars, and had a little 1100 Climax in it, a Covenant Climax engine. This was the English had made for a water pump engine during the war to put out fires. And uh, the car, we, we campaigned it around California and did very successful with it. And then he bought a two-liter Maserati, and then from there it progressed Went, we went to England, and Lance raced uh, Formula 2 in England, which was a gas-burning 1,500cc car. And he couldn't get on the main street with the English uh, boys. And he used to say, there's a famous comment that I've repeated many times. He said, any bloody little English farm boy can blow me off on a racetrack. Yeah. And he would, because they drove so quick, and, and, were, and even in the wet, as he would say. 
And so when he came back to America after that stint in England, he decided to build the all-American race car. Out of that came the Scarab. Yeah. And at the time, what was sort of more of a challenge for you, the nitro stuff or the, the road race stuff to work on? And- well, I made my living. This is, this is where I was lucky. I made my living working on sports racing cars by day. And by night, I worked on my own uh, top fuel dragster What'd and you- built, designed and built it. What did uh, so? Do you feel yourself more have a a bigger passion to drag racing or or sort of the sports car? I always wanted to be a race mechanic, and I always wanted to have my own stable that I was working for somebody. I mean, that's how you looked at it in those days. So I wasn't independent. I always, I obviously always needed somebody to sponsor me, and uh, I was hired by somebody, which I'll mention in a moment. But anyway, I worked on the drag racer for my hobby and so all night long and on the weekends and on the weekends we go drag racing and that was all for free and for a trophy mm-hmm. and then uh, my living was made working on sports racing cars and as a result the sports racing cars became so busy that i literally had to give up drag racing i, I can imagine because that was... i didn't have any time yeah and of course i had uh, as i mentioned one time before i dropped out of high school so i could continue to do this Later on, I went back and didn't even go to high school, just passed the test and went to college. But anyway, um, in doing that, I worked on the Scarab, and then a man by the name of Carol Shelby came along, who was a friend of some people I knew here in Los Angeles, and he had come out here to race in a in a particular race at Pomona. I think they called it a Grand Prix of Pomona or something. I can't remember. You look it up back in the 50s. And uh, uh, Shelby introduced me to a young man who happens to be a contemporary of mine by the name of Jim Hall. And he says, Jim Hall needs a, we didn't call him crew chiefs in those days. He just said, we, he needs a mechanic to take care of his cars full time. And I mm-hmm. said, boy, this is for me. And so I went to work for Jim back in Dallas, Texas, and took care of his original, uh, he had a two-liter Maserati and a three-liter Ferrari Monza. And uh, later on, he had originally started with a Corvette, but I wasn't involved with that. And then later on, he got interested in other cars, and he had a 1,500cc Lotus that we had flown in from England that Colin Chapman had built, which was the first twin-cam, four-cylinder, 1,500cc car built by cover, uh, engine by Coverney Climax. And I totally refurbished the car and got it prepared for the tracks here. And then our competition in those days were the Porsche RSs. Mm-hmm. You may know a little bit about AJ, the, the 550s. And uh, made the car very competitive with those. And, of course, Jim was still learning how to drive in those days. And many times we would lead them down the straightaway, which always made me feel good because I know that took power. And uh, then Jim moved to hire cars. And then there was a Lister being run in England that you probably know about. Mm -hmm. And a Jaguar in it. And I, uh, Shelby and Hall brought one over. And uh, I built a Chevrolet engine for it with some... Uh, advice from some of my drag racing buddies, and Jim went out and raced that that Chevrolet V8 powered car on a racetrack in the Lister. Was there um, was there anything because I, just picturing these cars, all such different and very complex setups. Was there anything you just scratched your head and went, "How does this work? How, how can I improve this engine and, and make it more reliable and faster?" You know, when the when I look back on the Chevrolet, there was a lot of options, mm-hmm. and of course, I utilized my drag racing experience to to use every one of those yeah and i was able to generate some 325 horsepower out of the engine and on gasoline and that was a lot of power for the engine which was uh when was bored and stroke was 330 inches 
And when you or were three, no, 302 inches, excuse me, but it was a 283 Chevrolet block, not a 302 block. Anyway, a technical. When when you were working, we were, when you were racing with Carroll Shelby at the time and going through Europe, and this was well, though I was Revenlow in Europe, and and uh, Shelby was mainly over here in this country, which I'll tell you later. Well, I was I was going to yeah. get to that now. When you were around Carroll Shelby, when you first met him, this was pre AC Cobra, you uh, know, all of the above GT three hundred and fifty, all of the above. Could you tell there was something special about Carroll Shelby at the time that, you know, were you surprised, I guess, when he went on to such fame? Or did you kind of go, he was always sort of destined for for this legacy he had? Yeah, that's an interesting thing you used to say that, AJ, because, you know, I've thought about that a lot. I had great respect for Carroll. We were friend up, friends up until the time of his death, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, I tr- <clears throat> tried to help him in his last days. Excuse me, did you get that? I got a little. F- yeah, there's some water right yeah, over there yeah, for yeah. you. Carol always had a spirit about him. Yeah. In other words, it was can do. No matter what it was, it was can do. And, you know, we do a little bit of this and do a little bit of that. And some people give him credit for being a real scoundrel. And, you know, but yet I always thought he was a genius of a promoter and he really knew how to make things work. And he always thought big. He always had good sponsors and people that owned his cars, uh, uh, John Edgar, for instance, Temple Buell and so forth. And then when he went, um, and I'll tell you the story later, as he got involved with Ford Motor Company, it was he that went to Ford Motor Company and made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. He he definitely you know for everyone talks about you know him building these race cars, but I think what he's known for, besides being a legendary race car builder, is a marketer. Is you know is a promoter and almost like a Barnum and Bailey of the automotive world. You know, I think that AJ, I think that's probably the best way to say it. I think he was like a Barnum and Bailey. Yeah, yeah. He really he really had that uh, that choix de vivre, that uh, let's go do this attitude, and uh, whatever it took, he'd get it done. But he, I think he had his eye on the ball most of the time. And were you working with him in a shop when when it when Shelby was Shelby out in Venice with the GT350 yes, and yes, the Cobra? So uh, what, what were you doing at that time with him? Well, actually, at that point, I had graduated from you know working on the race cars, and I was more an executive, and I was I put his parts and accessory program together. And we, he had an ancillary company called PDA, which I, which was Performance Design Associates that Pete Brock and I were involved with, and you probably know a Peter. And I think that uh, Peter kind of out of that germinated his racing of Japanese cars with the Hino and then went to the, the uh, Datsun yeah. with Kadayama. Mr. Kadayama was the president of uh, Nissan here in, in the U.S. But anyway, out of PDA, we, I designed a lot of uh, intake manifolds for Carroll, for V8 engine, for Chevys and Fords that, that could use the 48 IDA downdraft Weber carburetor, which Carroll himself had an exclusive on, and we decided to sell to Hot Rodders. So I designed those things, and I designed the original wheel to go on the Ford Mustang GT350. Really? Not the steel one, but the aluminum, the five-spoke aluminum wheel. And then all kinds of ancillary things like exhaust headers and accessories and things. So that's how I got my start in the parts business. Yeah. How were the cars received to the public at the time? Uh, very well. I mean, we, our competition technically with the Cobra was the Corvette, naturally. Yeah. And our cor- I think our Cobra cost more than Corvette. Uh, you can check the prices back in those days. They were are, exotic prices. Well, I mean, but I think, the cor- I think the the Cobra could have been almost twice as much as a, as a uh, Corvette, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere near there. Yeah. And then, of course, we had few dealerships around town and sold them, and people would private order them. And, and uh, 
And then the Cobra was was Ford's racing program that Carol sold him. But I got to tell you how the shop came about. I yeah, think you'd like find that of interesting. Well, with with uh, Revenlow, we built the original Scarab right here on Robertson Boulevard in West Hollywood. Oh wow! It's a clothing store now. Robinson so, and what? And uh, I only be, ask because I live right be, up there. Be, okay, between between Melrose and Santa Monica. On the west side of the street, there yeah. was a garage there called Warren Olson's Garage. I know that and, very well. Okay, well, that but now it is, it's an old tin building, corrugated building, but now I think it's a clothing store mm-hmm. to your left. Anyway, um, the original Scarab was built there, and there were a lot of people that started to become involved with the project. And uh, the, the gentleman that owned the facility, Warren Olson, asked me to run his shop uh, to do the general repair on the Porsches and the Jaguars, et cetera, et cetera. And I had been offered the job by Jim Hall to go back to Dallas. And so I wanted to be a race mechanic, and I went back to Dallas to work for Jim. And so that I worked for Jim for about a year and a half or two. And I, I was having a difficult time getting what I needed in Dallas in those days. Out here in Southern California, I could get what I needed, plus the racing community, the nucleus of it was here, and I had grown up in it. Yeah. And... uh I moved his cars to Culver City, California, and then uh, Warren Olson had moved the Scarab Project, where we built more Scarabs, down to Jefferson Boulevard next to a company called Traco, which were was, was Jim Travers and Frank Coons, and they were Indi- Howard Keck's Indy Mechanics, and all the offices were in there that he they built for Keck and everything. And so we, en- we had the building next door, and we built the remaining Scarabs uh, sport cars before we built the Formula One car. And then we built the first all-American Formula One car there and designed and built the engine at Myron Drake over who had been building the Offenhauser or Myron Drake engine, which was run at Indy. It's just it, – it's so funny, and I wish people who aren't in this area could see what these places are like now because <laughs> what used to be old race shops and garages are now, you know – first class shopping areas and a very very expensive real estate so it's it, it's very funny to hear these locations of, of where these iconic cars were built and that's that leads me to an interesting point yeah. because i've been interested in in how it has progressed around here too and i can say that probably the nucleus of all this and why the car culture had started here prior to the war and then continued after the war is a lot of the hot rodders had been involved in the aviation projects mm-hmm. in, the, in the aviation factories, and some of them that were air, airmen flew, and some of them were crew chiefs on airplanes and so forth. Like in the case of Phil Remington, who was a close friend and one of my mentors, he was a crew chief on a B-24. It was a B-24, the Liberator. Anyway, uh, uh We'll have to look that one up. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, all and Jim Travers was also and 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 those people were in, they were around high technology of the era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this you know, there's always sort of that that romanticism of you know, especially Carol Shelby is just a farmer. Uh, you know, or these people are just tinkering in the backyard. You know, lifting an engine up over a, a tree stump. But, but th- there was lots of engineering going on. There was lots of well-educated planning and R&D to really perfect testing. Testing, building testing machinery, everything. To really perfect the sport of racing. I I think we we had one of the first flow benches to figure out the velocity of air going through intake ports and out exhaust ports, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, camshaft profiling, and we built the first Desmodromic American engine with no valve springs to run in our Formula One car. Those things were all developed, and we built testing equipment to test them. Yeah. How does it make you feel now uh, to see those cars be held in such high esteem and be worth so much money now, and then to see them, you know, the things like the, the Rolex Historics racing again? I think that it... it I think that it's a piece of history that we yeah. needn't forget, and I think this helps bring it in, into modern focus, and I think it's wonderful. I, I do always love hearing the stories of, of guys sort of, of your era when they just go, these were just cars. They, when you're, when, a year later, it was old technology. You threw them away. You went and got another one, and now you really— you robbed pieces off them to put on the yeah, next one. And, yeah. or, and now you hear some of, you know, a million dollars for some of these cars could be a low number. I mean, especially the Cobras. So it, it, it's very funny. To, I love hearing the stories of, you know, people go, oh, I bought that car for two grand. I sold it for three grand. And I thought I was ripping the guy off. And now it's, you know, 2.3 million. Yeah. But to finish this <clears throat> story with uh, Traco and the building of the Scarabs on Jefferson Boulevard, yeah. down where Dick Gullstrand is uh, in that area and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, we Lance increased the size of his shop, and we moved over a, a place in Venice, California, which was not very big in those days, but the facility was bigger than we're used to, and I was on Princeton Avenue. And so we put, had a full race shop on Princeton Avenue for finishing the Formula Libre Scarab and for finishing the other Grand Prix cars, and uh, two Heenan and Freud dynamometers, full metal brakes and all kinds of metal shaping equipment and so on, spearheaded by the, the mechanical genius uh, uh, Phil Remington, and then Warren yeah. Olson, of course, was the, the team director. You don't hear much about Warren nowadays, but he made a tremendous contribution uh, to motor racing in those old days, but later started flying. Anyway, when Lance quit racing at his mother's request, she basically said, we're pulling the purse strings, and that was enough to get him to quit racing. Sure. Been so uh, he had the entire shop for rent, and Carol Shelby had been in town figuring out what he was going to do next after he'd won Le Mans in 1959. And he rented the shop from Lance, and from that came the Cobra. That's where we built the Cobra. And that building is still there today? It's still there today, and I think the Bartell Bartell Harley-Davidson, his repair shop, uh, uh, operates in the old building that we built and assembled some of the GT350s Wow! That, before it, we moved to the Los Angeles International Airport. Yeah, it, it's so neat to hear, you know, these, these places. They're, they're still here. They're still around. You can, I mean, you can drive over and see Shelby Shop stand as it did back then. I mean, it really hasn't structurally changed I at all. I always wish somebody would go in there and, uh, who was a Cobra enthusiast and would restore it and make it into a small museum yeah. before the building gets modified and torn down. I mean, I, I don't know if it ever will, but, you know, that, that area has become pretty industrious because of the marina. Yeah, it, and it could really be considered a, a historical landmark. It could be. It really could be. When I was going through your bio, and this really interests me because of what we're going through with the renovation here with the museum, you served as a consultant on the construction of the Peterson Automotive Museum when it first was built. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, well, we opened in 94, so this would have been sort of the early, early 1990s you were yes. working? Yeah, when the Natural History Museum 
Bob Peterson decided to he had viewed this property. I think originally he as the as the story was told to me and I won't go into great detail that he was going to originally think about putting the publishing company in it and it didn't work out and he ended up in a building down just down the street you're probably aware of mm-hmm. on Wilshire a high rise and uh, he had been in the high rise on the corner which is now torn down by the way on the corner of La Cienega and Sunset where they've torn that whole huge two blocks out of you yeah. up in that area anyway um he saw this, I think it's 11,000 square feet or something like that, whatever the, the structure is here. You you can uh, modify those statistics unless you're just going to go raw. Yeah. Uh, the This place with the parking, and he offered it to the Natural History Museum, of which he was on the board with Otis Chandler, who, and the two of them had helped build what they call the bird wing at the Natural History Museum. The Natural History Museum had a collection of old cars that had been gained through the years through donations and so forth, which they didn't really house in the museum. They housed in a restore facility over in Hill Street, just adjacent to that part of a beeline almost mm-hmm. from the Natural History Museum. And so the Natural History Museum decided, Bob said, I will donate, we'll buy this building, and I'll put up the money to pay for it so that we, the down, the down payment so we can pay for it, and then you and I'll leave you the balance of the money in my will. I don't know whether you want to say that or whatever. Anyway, the Natural History Museum owned this museum. Mm-hmm. And then they built this facility as you originally knew it. Yep. And Bob was the mainstream behind moving it forward. And then at one time, I guess you know a little bit more about what changed in it uh, with the financial structure and so forth. And Bob ended up buying it from the county of Los Angeles, which owned the Natural History Museum. And then he owned it, and I guess his foundation owns it now or something. Yeah, you know, we are our own our own yeah, entity. Right. Um, so how did he, he brought you on board? Well, I was a consultant, and one of my jobs was to uh, – uh, get the museum people at the natural history involved with the automotive community and help raise some funds from the automotive manufacturers like in the Detroit and Germany and Japan. So and, when, when Mr. Peterson came to you with this idea of you know, the middle of Los Angeles, this large museum dedicated to just the automobile, how did you sort of feel about that? Uh, I thought it was a wonderful idea, a splendid idea, as a matter of fact, since I'm a big museum goer and my former wife had worked for LACMA, and we were always down here on Museum Row, and I thought this is the start of something big in that area. And there was also the Craft and Folk Art Museum and the Page, and Natural History Museum already owned the Page. Yeah, so, I mean, this definitely is... Was a natural. Yeah, it, it, it was a natural progression, and, you know, when you hear about just, especially how the automobile shaped the Miracle Mile let alone all of Los Angeles, it definitely seems that this is the most fitting place to have an automobile museum. Um, what? How do you sort of see the evolution of car culture in Los Angeles uh, going now? I mean, since you've seen it since it's really its conception of hot rodding and racing, do you sort of like where we're going with, you know, alternative fuels, uh, you know, is sort of the new... You know, with Tesla is sort of the new um, car on the market for Los Angeles and the car culture. And then, you know, with the racing here and, and sort of the evolution, how do you sort of 
What, what is your take on all that? I, I see some tremendous changes taking place. Yeah. And being in the tr- around the transportation industry, because later on when I quit racing, I got in the high-performance parts business, and I was in that for some 25 years and sold high-performance parts uh, that I designed and, and uh, executed. And uh, when I see what's taken place, I, back in those days when I was in it in the, in the late 60s, the er, all through the 70s and up into the early 80s, there was tremendous legislation taking place. Mm-hmm. And that was having a major effect on what you could do with performance on the street. And I saw that coming and then ultimately sold the, build, the business. And I saw that it was going to shift. And that was an area that I didn't want to be in. As I see it today, I think probably for a person, uh, I mean, I drive, and it's almost a sin, but I love it because I'm a passionate car guy. I drive an E63 uh, uh, AMG Mercedes E-Class at 577 horsepower. It's awesome, but I'm barely getting on it. So, uh, uh, But I need it, and it's just part of my adrenaline. So, uh, but technically, I could probably drive a pure Tesla or drive a little Volt around this city because I think that's all you go fast enough. You can, you're able to go fast enough, and you're able to really communicate. And when you consider the amount of driving we do on a daily basis, there'd be no problem in charging it up when I got to the office and then charging it up when I got yeah. home. So I see it as a very practical move. And uh, and I think that probably the, the best solution is the hybrid at this point because it give, it eliminates the range anxiety that people have that they're not going to be able to charge their battery up, although I hear Ch- Tesla set up charging stations and so forth. Yeah. Uh, along routes like key routes like you the can five go so. you can go transcontinental now you know from in charge east coast to west coast and just charge at tesla charging stations that's wonderful what um what about with the because I, I sort of feel right now as is the heyday of muscle cars i mean it is the resurgence with it definitely with, you know stuff like the hellcat and the new shelby gt350 and beautiful cadillac the, a cadillac going 200 miles an hour i mean i assume if somebody would have tapped you on the shoulder in the 60s and said there will be a cadillac that is going to go 200 miles an hour uh and it's going to comfortably seat five it's going to get 25 miles to the gallon you, you would have you know thought he was a witch um do you see you would be suspect yeah do you see the new technology now and does part of you want to work on this stuff do you, do you want to see if you can breathe on it and improve it well at my age i don't really uh, cherish getting all upside down and on wrenches and yeah. creepers and so forth anymore but i like to think about it and i like to talk about it and i like to be involved with the people that are doing it and i'm utterly impressed with what i see is going on on a technological basis and i think life and cars were a lot simpler in the old days than they are now but at the same token technology makes it a much easier and i've always been a lover even though i had several old cars myself i've sold most of them off uh, that i really appreciate modern technology yeah i mean my e63 is to me the epitome of a fine automobile oh i'm sure and it just does everything the way i want to do it yeah and uh you know the question is uh if you i just appreciate the progress that's taking place yeah but i worry because what are we going to do i mean we're in almost a, a a a log jam, you know, it's just uh, here in the city trying to move anywhere on any particular time. Uh, hopefully the ra- ra- the mass transit will take the marginal drivers off the road in certain key A to B destinations. And uh, It really is the double-edged sword because y- you get these cars that are 700 horsepower and there's just nowhere to enjoy them. Except uh, 
I think, track days. And yes. that would be fun. We could look forward to that as I, as a young uh, boy, look forward to going to the drag races and spending all Sunday afternoon out there drag racing. The, the, and then talking about it afterward, and we used to call it bench racing. But to, but I think that will be the thrill. I'm going to take my new car out there, and I'm going to get to really use it today. Yeah. Well, I, and sanctioned and safer. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that, that sort of, especially just for the safety of these cars, because these are also becoming lethal weapons. You yes, can go so fast that, that it really needs to be moved to the track, the excessive driving. Uh, I'll leave you with this last question. Um, somebody who wants to go down your path, because I think there's a lot of people, uh, especially younger people, who want to get into, into engineering and work with their hands and get into motorsports, what sort of advice would you give to somebody uh, to start in a career like you've had? I think the opportunities are still there as I view it, although I think some of, them, some of the opportunities have, have probably changed. I think someone has to really be to recognize that. I think things have become more corporate, more involved, less entrepreneurial. Although we need, since I'm an entrepreneur, we need more entrepreneurs, and we certainly have had entrepreneurs in the in the automotive aftermarket. I think for a young man, if their passion's automobiles, they should pursue their passion mm -hmm. and then realize the reality of it, where they're going to go with it, what they want to do with it, and what their opportunities are. All right. Well, Sonny, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time to talk with us. Nice talking to you, AJ. Thank you very much. Have a good one.